I would spend at least three quarters of my day on the acquisition side. So I worked it out maybe five years ago in business that I'm not a natural salesperson. Obviously, customer service and client services, it's not one of my strong suits. When I look at my commercial assets, when I look at the, the number at a P&L level, it's black. Everything else is red, despite the fact that mortgages have gone up considerably. With the economy where it's at, rising rents, like we said, I don't think you'll be making a bad decision buying in most capital cities if the you know, cash flow is good enough. Are you finding this podcast enjoyable but looking to enhance your commercial education? Well, we've created an innovative online course that offers comprehensive content. With over 50 lessons available on demand, you can delve deeper into the subject matter. Additionally, you'll gain exclusive access to the valuable online community where you can connect with industry experts. For more information, please visit rethinkcommercialeducation.com.au. Oh, good day. Hey, Garfield Tarrant here. I'm the co-host of Inside Commercial Property, where we talk about commercial investing. It's what we're about. Uh, we've been doing this now from the deep, dark days of COVID. I was only sort of driving the kids to school this morning and reminded me that we're now four years into when I probably first heard the term of COVID, which would have been uh, January 2020. So four years on. And uh, the impacts of COVID still remains, whether or not there's any impact on commercial property. We can have a chat about that today, but I'm sure a lot of people would say, yes, there is, because most organizations are still working through this work from home scenario. And uh, as a result of that, the value of uh, office blocks are a lot more subdued than what they used to be. And I know there's a lot of people still struggling with that, a lot of big retail um uh, investment funds who invest in commercial property still struggling with it, scratching their heads. But we spoke about that last time we got together on Inside Commercial Property. You can go and tune into it. Uh, lots of things for cover as we kick off 2024 with Scott O'Neill. He's the founder. He's the CEO. He's the director. He's probably also cleans the toilets there over at Rethink Investing. Scott, how are you going? You well? I'm very well. Yeah. Welcome uh, back from holidays, mate. You're good yeah. with suntan. Oh, just a little bit of surfing down the south coast, one of your favourite areas. I actually saw you. You're in a you by yourself with mates, right? I saw you at the farm. It's really, oh, yeah, I, yeah. I, you, you popped up on my feet as normally you sort of yibbiting on about property, but uh, and I just went, I know that hill. Yeah. Uh, Have you surfed down there? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, farm's cool. It's a good spot. It's yeah. nice and uh, quiet compared to Bondi. So yeah, I bet you it is. That's I, why we go down there. I just... remember the farm was when when it was actually a farm. Now you got to drive through new build suburbs to get there. Yeah, Shore Harbour. Um, um, but That's I remember right. when it was generally a farm and you had to drive down a, a dirt track to get into it uh, yeah. through some old guy's land um, yeah, wow. back in the good old days. How good. That was good. Yeah, was good no, there's then. so many good spots down there. It's uh, it's an expensive little market on the property front like because that was one of the things from COVID. Everyone you know, bought a holiday home there or decided to move further out of Sydney and yeah, it's uh, it's it's ridiculous. Some of the like we I saw there was um, a unit for sale, say a three bedroom thing for four and a half mil down there. You know, in Kiama. Kiama. See, Kiama's gone down a lot. Like Kiama went nuts during COVID. Talking about COVID and I guess impacts of property markets are more resi than commercial. But there's a lot of people who are maybe negative equity in Kiama these days. Oh, they have to be. Yeah. And that's one of the things we always predicted. All these guys were running out with the low uh, interest rates. They're going to buy a holiday home, but then you've got to keep paying that insurance. The rates went up. Maybe you don't want a holiday in that same spot forever. It starts to sort of, you know, the shine washes off very quick. Um, the shine wash. And people still want to go overseas and yeah. pretty much all of my, other than you sort of surfing at the farm, uh, all of my sort of feeds coming in social media, which I try and avoid, to be honest. The only reason why I have it is to keep abreast of stuff that we do here. Um, it's everyone skiing. Like, there's all ski feeds yeah. of everyone sort of 
Lots of know, commercial actually, investors are in Aspen right now. That's a lot sure. of commercial investors are in Aspen, and uh, that's a pretty expensive property market. Yeah. You know, no doubt you'll be expanding out there at some point in time, getting yourself a lodge or somewhere other. Bit of ski trip instead. Yeah, it would be good. Maybe, maybe you should be shouting a ski trip. We can go out there and uh, go to Aspen and you know get a late season out there. I can't ski. ski. Uh, I'm, I'm more of a, a a single stick sort of bloke, not yeah. a two two bloke. Yeah, I can <laughs> ski. Um, oh, I spent my time snowboarding. Now yeah, I sort yeah, of yeah. I'm a fair weather like like I'm a much a fair weather. Surf, I'm a fair weather sort of skier or boarder. It's got to be Makes sense. really, really good. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't do it, um, which is a bit sad. But um, it's good to see you, mate. There's yeah. lots, lots for us to cover in 2024. What's going to be the big themes for us uh, for 2024? I'm already feeling it. This year's, um, if I had to quantify it, last this time last year, I'd say 50% of our very large client base were not super active to buy within the next three months. So there was a lot of people sitting on the fence. That's now shifted to probably 75% of them really want to buy right now, like in the next three months. And, and we've actually done a couple of little surveys and stuff like that. So we have quantified that. And um, the theme is when rates are going to drop, this time last year is how high they were going to go. So that is the biggest difference. Uh, there is talk there's going to be a bit more stock because a lot of people are kind of, um, you know, it's been three years of low stock now, low low investment volume. So, you know, same with the residential markets. It's just going to be a little bit more choice out there for investors. I think there's going to be a window in time where essentially we've got vendors meeting the prices of the market. Because last year, a lot of them were just holding off selling. So transactions didn't happen. As we discussed in the last podcast, volumes were just so far down due to the disparity between what people wanted to pay and people wanted to sell at. So we're uh, we're in for a pretty good period, I think. Um, I'm acting on it from a business point of view. Like we're, we're rapidly expanding in terms of, you know, hiring more people. And, you know, I, th- I think uh, we've got to get ahead of this be- because, you um, I think we're going to be short of time, really, because of the extra volume that should come through, and it's just due to more positive sentiment. So, so I hear in the traps that you you might be doing a bit more resi, um, and, and that's on the basis, you know, you you, you kicked off the resi portfolio, and it's it's well documented. It's yeah. in your book. Um, we've spoken about my portfolio, the smart property investment portfolio, which we share uh, for the purpose of sort of showing how to do it. it it's resi, and, and we sort of we pivoted in the commercial at a point in time, and I want to use that as a bit of a theme, but. Are you making sure that you're able to cater for, for resi investors to get them sort of moving into the market before you can shift them into commercial type assets? Is that a, is that a business focus for you? So in terms of the business decision, uh, number one, we were never out of resi, but I'm putting more of a focus on uh, mostly because there's a few reasons to it. So one of them is the commercial markets are getting more and more expensive. So there is a point where you need more and more money to do well in commercial. So if you're rocking up with... 100, 150 grand deposit, residential is going to be better for you. So, uh, you know, we, we're founded on residential investing, like we've done thousands of transactions. So, we're, you know, we believe we're very good at it. It's how I started with my wife. It's how basically all, all my staff started as well, which we'll go into. And, um, you know, I think it's also a good time to get into resi. We're, we're coming out of, you know, a bit of a soft. Never thought areas. you'd say it. He's back, back in resi. Um, I'm back at certain price points. There you go. That's yeah. what I expected so you to answer that. 100% yeah. commercial forever. But yeah. <laughs> uh, but you really got to kind of build yourself into a position to get into the right commercial. So we're not here just to flog, you know, substandard stock. Like I, I see what others do in the market and they're going just sharp yielding properties just because they want to get in because it's cheap. I'm not for that. I'd rather just make my clients wait 
Um, but if they're literally short of the deposit needed to buy well, uh, it's either residential or stick your money into a fund, commercial fund maybe, or but then you lose the leveraging benefits. So uh, residential, if you buy the right asset now, you'll do quite well in the next few years because the minute those rates drop, happy days. You know, we're, we're going to be looking at substantial growth. The rents have been going up for the last few years at rapid rates. These are the things I always loved when I was a residential investor. I would find where the rents, well, you know, you'd target the kind of the tight vacancy markets because you know the tight vacancy market's going to push growth into rents as the growth and the rents happen. Uh, the yield will increase. As the yield increases, investors chase the yield, demand increases. So, it's an early indicator of future demand when the uh, basically the uh, you know the rents start growing. So I think that will push values up uh, for the next couple of years, and I think so. It's so good the play time. then, and and I guess how you're you're configuring your business is you're still orientated towards long term. Um, wealth creation, leveraging commercial property, but you've got to start somewhere. So you're, you're better, I guess your thesis is you're better off deploying that dough that you have right now into a residential asset because of market conditions at the right price point and get the uplift there for building for a commercial transition in time, which we've done. Exactly. Uh, look, there, if there's one thing we're known for over the years at Rethink, it's we're portfolio builders. So we want diversification in your portfolio. It doesn't mean just let's go buy 12 industrial properties because industrial's flying at the moment. It's not how we operate. We want to actually create long standard, um, diverse portfolios that can withstand multiple different types of markets. And no one knows what the market's going to be like in 10 years. So you've got to diversify somewhat. Uh, you know, you don't rule out retail right now just because uh, industrial is performing better. You know, because industrial might have an oversupply in ten years. So imagine you've got those dozen or so properties there, and you're going to get smacked all at once. So residential is a part of it. I think it's just and like, and this will go against what most uh, residential buyers agents uh, preach. You don't keep going down residential that route. It's almost. Uh, it's a fool's quest. You're going to run into cash flow problems. It's not an efficient method to retire because the yields are too low. Uh, so anyone that kind of goes beyond that fourth or fifth residential property, I think they're making a mistake. You know, you need to transition into commercial if you seriously want to retire. If you're happy just buying and working forever, go for your life. But you need commercial to balance out your residential, and you do need residential to build equity as well because not all of us are going to have a strong business behind you or you know some uh, inheritance, like you've got to get the money somewhere and that's normally saving over long periods of time. Residential will aid that. Well, having your money in the savings account, not doing anything is probably not the best way to create wealth, uh, a lot of people would argue. So um, if, if the strategy is, maybe that can help sort of shape a lot of our thinking and how we communicate and and um, and, and discuss different things around commercial property this year is this, this, this sort of baseline strategy of get started in resi and then pivot into commercial. The question is, when do you pivot into commercial? We can discuss that. Um, and getting started in resi means buying the right assets with a view towards that longer term strategy in mind. So probably is that you can either get significant uplift in, in capital growth to extract that equity and or realize some sort of capital event through a sale of that. You, you say the right sort of price points. What sort of price points for resi property at the moment are you looking at? I'd say under 750. Yeah. Uh, but definitely under 600K, you know? And I think if you're in those price points, like you can make quite good gains. You can still buy in capital cities, uh, you know, a house. Uh, I'm not a big fan of units or anything like that because of the supply issues you're always going to run into. You've got to target properties that have some owner occupiers in the market. And, uh, you know, one bedroom units don't often have that. So uh, I think residential, um, yeah, like I said, it's got its place. And my biggest tip is, 
you know, ask around. Don't always like everyone's got a residential buyer's agent, and they're going to keep you into that mindset. You know, this is why uh, I bought probably a dozen or so more residentials than I should have because everyone tells you to keep buying residential because it's great leverage and all that kind of stuff. But um, you do need to talk to a professional commercial investor just to balance the conversation out. And that's obviously why we've got this podcast. We're here to educate them, so maybe they can question their residential buyer's agent and. Um, it goes of us because residential is, um, yeah. Look, like I said, it's got a time and a place, but it, it has a use-by date too for most investors. Yeah, and a lot of people say, oh, "I feel that you know you've been around property for a long time and you've got a portfolio." It's 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 not a small portfolio, but it's not as big as the portfolios that I know other people have. And they go, "What would you do differently?" And I always say, "There's two things." Um, I wish I'd started earlier. Uh, and that, that's just a, a philosophical thing. I, I don't wish I did really because I quite enjoyed what I was doing before I actually had the responsibilities of properties and it's been good to me. Um, and the second thing is I, I wish I did more when I started because I could have and I didn't. I, could, I could, probably could have bought it twice the speed in resi, but I'd probably overlay that now. And if, if someone asked me that same question again, the, the third point would be I wish I got into commercial earlier. As part of that that portfolio journey, and um, you know the, the the smart property investment portfolio, which I share on this podcast, which is a portfolio we we built for the purpose of showing people how to do it. They, they got to like twenty resi properties, right? And price points from you know four hundred grand at sort of you know, last year four hundred grand to one point to 1.3 million bucks, right? So a reasonable spread, well purchased, all the properties did really, really well and we've sold down that a little bit. But um, I, I would have gotten to commercial earlier and, and I've been in the commercial now for a couple of years or so and that's where I'll be sort of spending my, my dough moving forward. However, I, I don't, I, I'm the only reason why I'm in the position where I can think about that in hindsight, but also look towards the future is the fact that I invested in Resi first uh, and that's the way to go. So uh, I think that'll help sort of shape 2024 for us, how we, we discuss that thinking strategically. So it's not just the, the tactical purchase of, of properties, but it's it's the why and what you're going to get out of it moving forward. But you spoke about building your, your team, Scott, to be supportive of it. And I sort of subscribe to your point that I think... Um, and, and what a lot of stuff I'm reading right now is that there will be a, a surge in price growth again. There will be a sustained period. It's going to go crazy, but it's going to be a, a sustained burn of of um, a price growth uh, moving forward. And I can see why you're sort of looking to um, uh, support your client base with with resi purchase. But I saw a comment on on, on something that we'll do in the other day, and it was, it was a fair comment. It was quite complimentary, but it pretty much said, and I thought I'd bring it up with you because we don't hide anything here. But it pretty much said. This podcast makes you think that you're probably going to work with Scott um, uh, at Rethink um, uh, if you choose to use Rethink Investing, but it's not always the case. Uh, it's likely they're going to be working with with one of your team members. Um, what do you say to that, mate? Oh, so look, I know I've worked with your team members. Um, yeah. They're actually better than you personally because yeah. they're a bit more responsive. And well, uh, that's the thing, isn't you it? Know? Yeah. Um, but, 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 but you know, you've got the challenge of a successful growing business. Well, the best way to answer that, I'll explain what I do in my day. So I would spend at least three quarters of my day on the acquisition side. So I worked it out maybe five years ago in business that my I'm not a natural salesperson. And so I, you know, obviously customer service and client services, it's not one of my strong suits. Where I'm best at is negotiating deals. You know, I can see the value of a commercial property, you know, within minutes of looking at it because it's literally just all I do all day. So you can, you know, you know the square meter rates off the top of your head. 
So I'm negotiating a lot of deals. And I do it also with uh, locals too. So we've got, you know, a guy in Hobart, guy in Sunshine Coast, guys in Perth, guy, like we're all in the capital cities. You've got guys with planes that fly around Australia, right? Yeah, yeah. Bob, Bob Mike, uh, <laughs> yeah. our rural guy. But yeah. essentially, like we all work together and we're negotiating on deals. And then they get fed to what we call a, a client strategist or property strategist. And then we send a property one-on-one to a client that meets that brief. So... You know, it, we're a scaled business, um, but quality control is the number one way to get the best result for as many clients as possible. If I'm there sitting to talk to every single client, uh, we'd do five deals a month, but we're doing 40. So, and the for quality of those 40 is really up there because number one, I'm involved in signing off on the deals and stuff like that. So, uh, yes, I, I'm, I'm definitely available to talk to many clients when they ask. Uh, but, you know, a lot a lot of them don't ask because they're happy with the guys they're talking. And uh, a lot of the guys working for me, um, they won't say it publicly, but they're, they're self-made multimillionaires as well. A lot of them don't need to work, you know, and uh, that's a great thing because they don't have commission breath as well. They're not there just to get someone into a sale. And even if they were, that's when the next stage of our business kicks in, which is the due diligence team. So our due diligence team, uh, essentially is there to find problems with the deal and they don't get incentivized if it settles. Yeah. So they don't care if it settles or not. They care if they make a mistake or miss something. So the business is structured in a way that quality is the number one priority and um, and that's how I fit into it. And then the rest of my time, I'm spending it, you know, growing the business, new ideas. I thought you were going to say cocktail receptions yeah. and uh, that sort of stuff, drinking champagne. Yeah, no. I wish. No, no. no. <laughs> but it makes sense, right? You've only got so many hours in a day, so you're best deploying your talents where you're going to get the maximum impact and upside. And um, the property front is is definitely that, not um, keeping in the back of my mind, oh, I haven't got back to that person in time. You know, you, you'd be in the same in your, in your business. Like you... Yeah, you've got well, to really you, you, be a because you know I, I spend all my day going. I don't want to block yeah. things being advanced, you know, and 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 often you know you, it, the people think they need to elevate stuff up to you, and you go, okay, I'll get onto it, and it, it doesn't get done immediately, or you don't really understand or appreciate the time sensitive I, at I all. I remember sending that commercial property to you, and it was like, "Where's Phil? Need him? Uh, we're gonna. It's gonna get sold." And uh, yeah, you, you get stretched so far that even something personal and important like that. Uh, it's uh, you know, you know where to be seen for days sometimes. Yeah, and and you know, with 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 my team or people I work with, say if it's it's sort of you know property investment type stuff, I say if it's really really important and you need an answer straight away, text it to me because I'll probably get back to that pretty quickly. But if it's requires some thought or whatever, it's gonna have to wait till later in a day when I'm sort of outside of the cycle of the madness of the working day. So um, there, there's a hot tip, you know, if if you're working with buyers agents, tell them how. You operate, and they will hopefully shape the way in which they communicate. Well, you just got to let let them know the parameters for getting the job done. Because I always go, I want this done, get it sorted out. Um, well, you got to be invested in it anyway. Uh, so yeah, okay. Thanks for thanks for explaining that. And it sort of makes sense, right? Um, uh, and it's good to see that the business continues to to grow and evolve. It's because you always find good people to come and work uh, for rethinking investing. We understand. I've I've met some of them over the years. Um, most of them are okay. Uh, and I didn't go to your Christmas party this year, unfortunately, which I would have liked. It looked a bit fancy, but uh, the team's growing. Um, uh, one of those team members, uh, Sid Widge, uh, has been waiting patiently in the sidelines of, as, as we've sort of, you know, had a chat for about 20 minutes or so. Um, he joined your business uh, a little while ago, but this is a, a great sort of case study and story of someone that started off being a, a property investor, decided 
probably was their passion. They turned into a career and then eventually they joined Rethink. Uh, Sid, how you going, mate? Good, man. Good. Thanks, Th- thanks for your patience. Yeah. Did did what do you say make sense? Is that how it works with with him sort of out there probably being the, the boffin in the background sort of assessing the deals and guys like you probably go out there and do actually all the hard work? Well, look, you know, I think um, Scott's pretty good. So I was a past client of Rethink as well. So okay. I, I knew him before how he works. Are you he one of these sort of quiet self-made millionaires who made a fair bit of dough through property? property. Oh, I don't know it's if okay I can say yes. Yeah. Millionaire, but yeah, I've been investing in property for a while and I love doing that. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So what, what do you do at Rethink? Rethink? What's your job so now? So my, my role at uh, Rethink is a property strategist. So like um, Scott was describing, there's the acquisition side and there's a property strategist side. So we work with clients um, and we'll basically help them you know, come up with a strategy, understand their goals, um, you know, where they're at, what they're looking to achieve, and then kind of give them a bit of a plan of what type of asset to buy, um, what not to buy. Um, if they've got an existing portfolio, then we'll review it and kind of give them a bit of guidance. What's, you know, what can be... Uh, kept, what should be sold, where can you get equity from, and yeah, how can you make that leap into commercial if they're a first-time commercial investor? So it's really about kind of giving them that um, strategy on yeah how to kind of get into commercial property and just guiding them through that. And we, we're basically the, the front end of rethink to them. So we'll communicate with them, we'll go through everything. Obviously, the acquisition guys and the due, due diligence guys work in the background, but we're the ones who will communicate and yeah make sure that they're sort of getting what they're looking to achieve out of. So, 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 so you run point, you you sort of steer the conversations with the client, getting an understanding appreciation where they're going, the, the strategy they're looking to embrace and then, you know, sit at the intersection of, of presenting properties to them and supporting the deal. Yeah, exactly. I think the first thing I do is try and understand their goals. A lot of them probably have vague goals and my job is to try and kind of get them to narrow down their goal. Um, and once I understand that, it's a bit easy then to kind of recommend a path. A lot of them will come and say, oh, we've heard the podcast and we just want to buy a commercial property. Okay, why do you want to buy it? What's the reason? What are you looking to achieve? And once I understand that, it's a bit easier then to kind of go down what they're really looking for and what they're trying to do. When you ask those sort of cascading questions, do, do most people have an answer? They go, oh, I never really thought about that before. Yeah, look, a lot of them do say that, oh, you know, I just want to make some money out of it. Okay, then you kind of just have to dig deep. Okay, why Why are you looking to achieve something specific? Is it kids' school, private you know, private school fees? Is it do you want to retire early? Do you want a fancy overseas holidays every year? Like what is it that you are wanting to buy the asset for? Um, and, you know, likely when you, when you start sharing some examples, then they go, okay, oh, yeah, well, you know, I want to kind of achieve this. And then you can kind of, you know, hone it down to, okay, all right, this is what you're trying to achieve. So then, you know, how long do you think you have? Like, you know, what's your time frame? Once you understand that, then it's a bit easy going, okay, you should buy, you know, start with this um, and then kind of carry on. You also have to understand the financial position, how much funds they have available as well. Once you have all that, then it's it's pretty easy from there to come up with a bit of a plan for them. Is there anyone who, who has a, an objective which isn't making money? Oh, good one. Yeah. I haven't come across anyone yeah. yet. Because I love go, they go, I love <laughs> property. Yeah. Why do you love, like, why do you love property? You, you, you get down to it, you know, people love property because they want to make money, right? That's, that's what it is, right? And, and and this is the problem, I think, with what you have with uh, a lot of commentary and TV around property at the moment. People think it's actually, you know, soft furnishings and pillows and, and, and you know, the livability, which is one aspect of property. But 
every single person I know in property want to make money through property as quickly as possible uh, to save for what would be some sort of retirement or and and the optionality. It's probably a better way to frame it. Everyone invests in property for the optionality of of being able to make decisions in the future because they have a bit more dough in their back pocket. Yeah, it's I mean, as simple it, as that. Yeah, it's just a vehicle, right? Like shares is a vehicle. I think property people can relate to a bit more because they can see it. It's physical. They understand it. It's just a vehicle to get you to your goals, really. Mm. Uh, the share market's rebounding at the moment. I look at my portfolio every day, and it seems to be performing a lot better than what it was a year ago. I might have to put everything in the share market now instead of this this commercial property lark. But uh, it goes back to the point, no doubt, Sid, you went down this pathway. Um, you're a commercial property investor, yes? Yes. Okay, but you started off in residential yep. investing. Tell us about tell us about how you got to where you are from a portfolio, personal portfolio perspective today. Yeah, so I started about 10, 11 years ago, um, started off in resi. Um, I think at that time, there wasn't much uh, education or knowledge around commercial investing in, in general. And to be honest, um, I probably wouldn't have had the funds anyway to, to start off. But I think what what sort of triggered it, what was my story was um, I went to a business networking event and met some interesting people there. And I think the the seed was planted then of kind of getting out of the nine to five rat race um, and achieving financial independence. That's what sounds kind of a bit sort of rah rah seminar um, type thing, right? Uh, actually, yeah. it wasn't. It was actually a network uh, network marketing uh, event, which I wasn't keen on at all. I wasn't interested, but I just met other people there. And um, one of them suggested to, to get into the Rich Dad, Poor Dad book. And uh, there was another book called The Slight Edge. Um, great books, by the way, if you haven't yet yeah, read those two. Um, and you know, Robert Kiyosaki's whole um, theory is about um, having passive income, generating that passive income. So that kind of led me to a path of working out how can I do it. Yeah, I looked at shares, looked at property, um, you know, looked at a lot of things and in the end decided to go with property because it was a bit easier um, to kind of um, uh, go with and the banks would um, favor them um, more. You know, you could leverage a bit more than you could with shares. Um, and then, yeah, I just started reading a lot of books, attending seminars, trying to understand um, a bit more about property. So that's a pathway which is well trod, uh, and, and you find a lot of people have this, this, this there's normally catalysts which which sparks a passion in, in property, and it could be something like that, like go to a property show, or they run over someone at a barbecue at a kid's thing, and they're, they're, they're wealthy because they've got all this money in property. So there's normally this this flashpoint, right, um, which 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 ignites people's passion in property, then they absorb themselves in education, and they tune into a lot of podcasts, stuff like this, and they get obsessive about it, and you find that property investors, you must see it all the time, Scott, these people go down this journey, they get obsessive about property, and then they do nothing, right? Right? They'll spend two years educating themselves. So, you know, the, the hot tip is um, as soon as you have a degree of confidence and capability and you've got the funds to be able to do it, I'd get moving pretty pretty quickly. Back to my point, because there will be a point in time in your investing journey when you said, I should have started that two years earlier than you can do. So, you know, this is this 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 notion, I guess this doctrine of kicking off in in residential property investing with a view towards leveraging into commercial. Because as Scott said, there's a point in time when you're going to start thinking about that optionality, optionality of retirement. And, you know, large residential portfolios can be quite a, a suck uh, over the years. So, you know, balancing it out or pivoting into commercial is pretty key. But, you know, starting off in resi, resi investing, you've spoken about it, Sid, you know, you need to have those financial goals. You need to know what you want. You know, you've got to go about 
associating yourself with the right people, understanding the investment, go through that pathway to to drive forward and position yourself so you can actually move into commercial. But as we know, most people only buy one or two resi properties and they get stuck. And that's that's the the fortune favors the brave in in uh, in property investing. But most people who invest in property buy the wrong property to start with, and I imagine that's a catalyst for for creating handbrakes. You see a lot of that in in clients that you work with who are who are stuck in in resi properties that don't really perform, but they really want to move into commercial. Yeah, you see that all the time, and I think it's it's uh, I don't know what it is like. Um, it's probably a lack of awareness as well, and a bit of fear there as well. Um, but you know, a lot of them will, um, it's, it's a mindset thing. Like they'll buy one, they'll buy two. And then the, when the first hurdle comes or the bank won't lend you, or it's too hard to work with the broker, they'll just stop. You really need to have that drive to get past that hurdle. Once you do get past that two to three hurdle, that's when I see, you know, that they'll go ahead and buy six, seven, eight, and they'll keep buying and they'll work out ways to do it. There's, there's different ways to do it. Right. Um, even when you hit a borrowing capacity, there are different ways you can get a second or third tier lenders. Um, you know, you can borrow in sort of different entity names. So there are ways, but it's only those who have that drive, who really want to get to that goal, will go and explore those and therefore cross that sort of barrier. So this very much, you know, getting it right and surrounding yourself with the right team. You can do it, do it by yourself and a lot of successful property investors or go down the pathway of leveraging a really talented team and they'll help you with the market analysis and property selection and supporting you with financing strategies and giving you a good lens towards risk management. Um, you know, how do you diversify your portfolio from the front end? How do you manage your property through property management? You know, all the legal and regulatory considerations around it and that lends itself to resi. Uh, to commercial as well, um, and also to help you shape your investment strategy with view towards sort of um, uh, economic factors and economic indicators which may shape or determine how property markets are going to move forward. But Scott, you made the point, you know, you, you unraveled a, a, quite a large resi portfolio to get to calibrate it to a point where you were comfortable with holding and retaining resi properties but having a commercial strategy. Um, when do you know you're ready for commercial, you know, and, and how do you make that transition? Well, I think the first time the banks start pulling the rug from under you, you know, when you've got a fair bit of equity in your portfolio and you can't lend on it, then you know you haven't set it up properly because you've got, you shouldn't have too much lazy equity in your your portfolio. And then the banks see it as, you know, an inefficient portfolio and then you can't lend. And what's lazy equity? Lazy equity is when you've got so much equity in there, the return on equity drops because basically you're, uh, you've got too much cash flow. You're, you're lacking the leveraging benefits that you initially had. Um, and yeah, it's not really getting offset by greater returns. So uh, there's three main regrets I had. Yeah, exactly. And you do want debt in your portfolio. We've always said it, even if you had a hundred million in cash, you'd at least split it to buy a $200 million portfolio and let the bank do half of it. Then you've got 200 million growing, you know, silly example, but you know, it's, it's basically that you need to leverage every fund manager on earth does it because they're always thinking, how do I maximize the internal rate of return for investors? And that's what they do. Exactly. So, and the, the three regrets I had as an investor was, um, one buying a unit. So I worked that at up too late. I ended up, that was, I think my first or second property I ever sold because it was, you know, Eastern suburbs of Sydney. I quickly worked out it wasn't growing as quick as the house in Sydney. And, you know, basically there was strata and all the problems that brought. Um, my other uh, regret was 
buying a development property when I'm not a developer. You know, I literally bought the whole duplex site thinking I'm going to, this is before commercial. I was looking for answers and I thought, I don't want to keep just buying boring old houses because I've seen the result. It does well, but I'm not going to retire from this stuff. So how can I maximize the return? And I jumped into development. It's not my skill set. Uh, it, it was literally just going to end up building two, you know, townhouses anyway. So I'd have to sell them and pay tax. Like, you know, I, I guess I like the idea of development more than the result of it. And I didn't have the budget to play in a space where developing made sense as well. And my third regret was not getting into commercial earlier. You know, the same regret you had. You, you do, if you got the the cash and equity, which sometimes you need to sell to get that equity back, or at least sell your lower yielding ones to free up capital and free up lending standards, then uh, you know, then you can actually turn your portfolio around. So I just learned by making mistakes. And the banks told me I was making mistakes, the returns told me I was making mistakes, uh, and I had to sell and pay the price uh, to get out of those uh, situations. Yeah, and it's not an uncommon regrets that most people have been in and around property a little bit. And there's a reason why people probably pay the money to use a company like yours. So you, you're, you're buying the mistakes, you're avoiding mistakes through cold, hard cash that other people have made to get a better portfolio creation earlier on, um, which gives you more options uh, in the future. I guess that lends itself, Sid, to, to scaling a, a portfolio where, um, you know, I don't know the makeup of your client base. How many of them are first-time investors versus... You know, they're, they're, they've got a number of properties and they're looking to scale. You, I imagine you've mainly got scale-based investors inside of Rick. Well, you probably get about maybe 30% are first-time investors uh, out of the clients that I've, you know, dealing with at the moment. But, yeah, that's probably a good split. A lot of them do have, um, a, you know, some sort of a property, resi or commercial before. Yeah. yeah. So what's the best way then to, to, to scale a portfolio? Like how do you, with an eye towards increasing equity, uh, and leveraging your assets, it, it's it's a well-trod path. There's no secrets here, but you know what what do you see works? No doubt, simplicity is best. Yeah, look, I think uh, a couple of points that Scott touched on um, were trigger points for me um, to actually start to transition from resi to commercial. And one of them was I also started to you know once I started to build a portfolio, I dabbed into development, bought a house that I could subdivide, got a DA. But the numbers just afterwards weren't stacking up, even though at the beginning it looked like they were. Um, and, you know, my stock standard buy and hold houses have, have done better than, you know, when I've tried to do the development type. Um, the other issue you get with a lot of resis, and I'm sure all of us are aware, is the maintenance and the headaches and the tenants. And it was just getting to a point where you've got multiple properties that it was just getting, yeah, I was getting slightly annoyed with with all the things. Um, there was enough equity in there. And I think to reach my passive income goal, like it was going to take a while and I would have to start selling things. Then you you, you know have to um, put CGT into the uh, mix of things, which, which no one really talks about at the beginning. They're like, oh, you need 12 properties paid off by 24, sell 12. It's never that simple. Um, so for me, it was understanding that there's um, better cash flow and I can reach that goal of mine a lot sooner. In fact, I can exceed that goal by having the same total asset value that I have today. And then it was just about a strategy on, okay, I've got enough equity. The banks are allowing me to pull it out. I'm going to pull it out and I'm going to start. Um, and now I'm basically at a point where um, the commercial properties are providing a lot more cash flow than my whole resi portfolio, even though I've got some very high yielding um, resi is because I bought it a while ago. I've got granny flats. 
Um, now I'm slowly starting to dispose off those resi acids, you know, so I'm not liable for too much CGT year by year and then sort of pivoting towards commercial. And I think it's, it's that sort of slow approach. So it, it will take some time, maybe five, six years, maybe seven years, I don't know yet exactly to sort of transition to a level where I want to get to. And I'll probably get to a 65-35 um, split, maybe 65 commercial, 35 Resi, I'm probably at the opposite right now. So yeah, there's a, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll always keep a, a little bit of resi, including my home, obviously. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, there's no right or wrong here. It's kind of the way I'm sort of flipping it and, and transitioning to it. Yeah. yeah and, and again, yeah. that's a very similar story that I hear from other people and myself included where you end up with, with quite a large resi portfolio and then it just becomes fatiguing. You know, where it's so fatiguing, you just go, oh, I don't want to deal with it. I'm sick of it. You know, you're constantly getting harassed by property managers, oh, the PowerPoint's broken, all this is broken, all the roof's leaking. I got a bill the other day, you know, the uh, I, got, I got a ceiling fixed inside a garage because it was water damaged and it's water damaged again. So the roof's obviously leaking and I get a quote to fix a roof for like 20 grand. I'm like, nah, that's like, just get some silicon bog it up so it's like you know but it, it is it's expensive right and yeah. and 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 that sort of frames a negative sentiment when you look at the the p l of it and and each one of those costs is yes it's it's a tax deduction but you still got to find the cash to pay for it to get a um you know uh, a, a tax consequence when you do your, your your tax return at the end of the year it it can be a pain you know and it's just proper like people are going to be listening you know a lot of people struggling trying to get in the housing market and they're going to hear some property investors going oh woe is me I've got this big property portfolio and I've got to manage it and, and pay money for it but it, it can be a pain it can be fatiguing when I look at um, my portfolio which which I'm a lot better at administering these days because I've sort of you know I, I spend a bit more time on it when I look at my commercial assets like when I look at the, the number at a P&L level it's black everything else is red you know, um, uh, despite the fact that mortgages have gone up considerably, uh, mortgage rates have gone up considerably on commercialized assets, I'm still in the black on it. And I have nothing to do with it. Nothing at all. I get a statement once a month. There you go. Yeah. Things are okay, Phil. Don't worry about it. And I go, this is good. This is good, Scott. It's what you need. Yeah, but look, to throw a negative light on that, you'd still get that with commercial. You know, like I'm I'm dealing with a few large uh, maintenance items. and, and You've got to put a new fryer in the chicken shop, do you, or somewhere or other? Or one of them I've got to spend, um, and there's a benefit to this, of course, like we're, we're looking to spend about 700000 on remodeling a shopping centre to then expand the shopping centres so they can pay more rent. But you still got to come up with that cash or it's not going to happen. So um, there's way, like it's... It still can give you, you know, concerns and that, like, you know, but there's commercial properties like the one you bought, like an industrial strata warehouse. Not much goes wrong with that. The roller door and the roof might go every few decades. You know, it's it's simple. But if you buy an old shopping center or, you know, a giant multi-tenant industrial facility that's 40 years old, you know, get ready for the maintenance. But it, the good thing is, like, you have that equation that starts off in the black. So you might be 100, 200 grand positive per year. You've got to spend 50 of that on a small new roof. So at least yeah. you're ahead. But these are CapEx, right? Yeah. You know, um, 
which is different to to some of the other costs you might have inside of um, and you could say the same in resi but you just don't get it at the same uh, you don't get it at the same cadence it feels if it happens it's it happens it's big but it doesn't happen a lot um, but you got the tenant offsetting a lot of the uh, the expenses around sort of make uh, around um, outgoings and stuff, right? And that's, exactly, that's the benefits. So yeah, there there is a difference, and the, it's the tenant paying the maintenance, which yeah, it does make a very big difference. And like Sid mentioned, if you've got six or seven or eight of these things, um, it's very comfortable knowing that your positive cash flow is a lot more predictable, because at least that side of the equation is on the tenants. CapEx is not, that's on you. But technically, if you're spending CapEx, you, you most likely increase in the value of the asset. So there is an argument you could go refinance it post CapEx expense. And, yeah. you or, know, or get enough lift on rents, right? Yeah. Which is what you're doing. Your or you tie it in and negotiate a new lease as part of fixing the roof, you know, get a five year lease out of it. Who knows? You know, there, there's there's many ways to sort of spin that. Uh, there is a, a number of ways to spin it, but it comes back to the point. And I don't know if there's a definitive answer to it. I'll ask you both individually. When is it time to move into commercial? What's what's the what's the signals that you got to look out for? You sort of mentioned, you know, when you get fatigued with this sort of stuff. But is there a, is there a hard and fast rule that it's time? Look, not at all. It's really up to the individual's uh, risk profile, what job they've got. Um, you know, like if you're a high paying specialist doctor, a lot of them could just go straight into commercial because they want to replace their income. We have a large amount of medical based clients and. They have these incredible incomes, and a lot of them don't spend a lot of time on their finances because they don't need to. They're protected by that well, just, salary. Just, just on that point, and it's good because if you're a, a high-paid uh, medical person, the, the predictability to generate income into the future is, is pretty much a given, which yeah. is very different to to other professions, right? Yeah. Um, you don't have that. You just don't have that predictability. You can assume predictability based on the success of your business, but you know, medical professionals swap time for money. So they go, well, I've got 20 years and I know I can get this yeah. much, you know, a surgeon, for example. Well, what sort of dough, like, you know, a good surgeon or a good good sort of, not a GP, but a specialist medical profession, how much money do they make a year? Oh, look, I've seen 500 to 2 mil per year, depending on, on where they're at. And a lot of them, my experience with them is before they've come to me, they've bought six off the plan houses. Mate, they make it. They a lot of medical professions plans. that yeah. I, I meet make such bad property investment, like really smart people. And you just go, well, what are you doing? You know, well, again, like, they're protected by that income. If you're yeah. getting paid two mil a year, uh, a house doesn't sound expensive. You know, you, that's a, you got the deposit every quarter for that again. And um, often their partner is a medical professional too. So we, we deal with a lot of, uh, you know, married uh, surgeons or, you know, anesthetists and, a, you know, who knows what, but basically they're, they're in a very comfortable position. They often have very large expenses. This is a massive generalization, oh, no, by the way. They, they probably don't spend their money yeah. effectively, right? Yeah, yeah. They, they've got the you know a very nice car, three kids in private schools in Sydney, and all of a sudden that large salary after tax is uh, it's mostly accounted for. So they're not saving huge amounts, um, some of them, but uh, when they get into their fifties, like the alarm bells start going off, and, and generally our clients um, are in their fifties, I'd say on average, early fifties, and. Yeah, it's because they need to start thinking about the retirement. How can I replace the income? So maybe that's the way to answer your question initially. When do you uh, go to commercial? When you really think it's viable to start replacing your income. If you keep going down the residential route, you're not going to replace your income. Yeah, it's a really good point, and and you know, and that's probably the, the signal that. Um, look, the point being, 
you you can't actually have these these types of conversations about investing in in commercial property unless you've got a big chunk of cash through an inheritance or some other mechanism. You need to manufacture that money somehow in order to get started. And manufacturing that money by saving it is going to take you quite a long time. It's quite a long time. So if you have those savings that you have deployed in a residential um uh, investing, you get the leverage effects of it. So it means that you can control more value by by having uh, a loan connected uh, in with it, but you're conserving that money also in, in, in an asset which should be going up in value if you're investing correctly. So everything absolutely comes down to the property selection um, in resi property with a view towards pivoting into commercial to replace your income. But, you know, if, if you're earning a million bucks a year in 2024, um, if you just index that by CPI and you've still got 15 years left to work, like you've got to do some pretty heavy lifting to get commercial assets to give you $2 million a year. Yeah. Yeah. No, and that's why the sooner the better. And a lot of them will then end up selling their residential investments like Sid's story. It's a classic one. Um, and he's doing it in a very strategic way, like um, which is perfect. Like I love the idea of just selling off incrementally, spread your capital gains tax. Uh, I'm in the same boat. I'm doing the same thing. I've I've still got uh, half a dozen residential properties I don't need or want to own, and uh, the goal is just to you know sell and then get into more commercial. That gives me a quiet day. You know, it's it's not so much building a future income. It's just getting rid of the assets that are headaches and just smooth, you know, assets like what you've got, you know, they, they don't, you can own a hundred of them and have the problems of, you know, 10 uh, residential properties, but you've got 10 times the asset base. That's yeah. sort of the ratio of effort. And and the ratio of effort to to the outcomes that you want or the, the impact of that decision-making is, is critical. We've done that recently on, on a smart property investment portfolio um, where we, I think we sold two properties in June of 2013 three and we sold two more properties in July of 23. So four properties sold in the space of two months. However, it falls into two different financial years. And and um, yeah, this is why you need a really, really good accountant as part of this. You know, if you've been holding on, depending how you hold your, your resi properties, but if you've been holding in on um, uh, resi properties and accelerating the growth of them from a capital point, but uh, extracting equity, you, you might have some retained losses inside of that. That, that 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 portfolio or inside that trust, which can be leveraged to offset capital gains tax. Nothing wrong with that. That that's just the way it works. Correct. And I've seen a lot of clients lately. That's not advice, by the way. That's just True. just an example. <laughs> a lot of the um, a lot of the situations. Once you factor in capital gains tax, this is another note. Again, talk to your your broker and your accountant at the same time. It's often better to refinance and then just put the money into it and then retain that asset because if you sell. Uh, go through all the efforts, pay a sales commission, you know, do all that stuff, and then capital gains tax on top. Sometimes you're not that much worse off keeping the thing. You've just got to deal with then leveraging off that, which means 100% debt on the deposit. So the cash flow is a little bit worse, um, but then you've got a larger asset base. And if you're secure in where you are and you think interest rates are fine versus the yields you're getting, uh, Hold it all. Yeah, I, I actually just did that myself, and probably I'm settling on uh, this month. Um, uh, I was going to sell a couple of properties up in Queensland just to support raising the deposit. It was a pretty big deposit, um, and uh, and I looked at selling them, and you know, I went down the, the process or pathway of doing. It. I was speaking to a buyer's agent who, who wanted them off market so they could um, uh, provide them to the clients, and I got to the point where I just went, 
I'll just refinance them. Not worth it. I just I said I'll just refinance. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to have to deal with the, t- the tax consequence, and I don't want to have to deal with the selling. It just annoyed me, and I just went. I'll just refinance it, uh, even though the refinancing. Um, it's a slightly higher mortgage that I'm paying on it right now, and it's changing lenders on this particular asset I'm thinking about. Um, but when all said and done, uh, the money that I was going to extract from it, less tax consequence around it versus getting the immediacy of a, a refinance and deploying that money into another deposit. I was like, well, it's, it's against a property which is in a good area in Sydney, which is going to continue to grow and evolve based on what we're just chatting before. And I just went, yeah, I'm happy to top that up to 80, you know, in a couple of years' time, we'll be back to 60, 60, 55% LVR. And I went, yeah, that's the cost of doing business, right? Um, uh, the the cost to hold that property now is going to be more uh, expensive because I've got a larger debt against it. But, you know, it's ameliorated by um, the deploying of that money into a new asset, which gives me that growth. Uh, resi, by the way, it's not commercial, but, uh, um, but this is the sophistication it gets to. But you don't get to play this game unless you start. Right, and that comes back to the point. How do you get started? Um, unless you've got a lot of dough, uh, you're one of these medical professionals, and you can get straight into the commercial. You've got to start somewhere, and that's that's a resi. So you'll, you'll be, and this will be shaping a lot of our chats, sort of moving forward. It's not a new thing, by the way. We've been chatting about this for, for years on this podcast. But how best do you create a strategy today, which is resi first, commercial second, and just actually understanding when it's time to shift and move, and that's going to be a it's going to be shifting sands for people, right? You might say, I might be five years' time, but you might be able to accelerate that. And would that be an objective to try and accelerate your move into commercial earlier? I guess coming from you, you probably would say, yes, it is. Yeah, look, if you want so to you retire You might say quicker. five years and you want to bring it yeah. back to three and four. Yeah. yeah. If you want to retire earlier, commercial earlier, like as, as we both said, it's one of our, our regrets. We held a little bit too long, uh, but you need the equity to play. And residential is a great spot. Um Especially now, like with the economy where it's at, rising rents, like we said, it's you know, you know, I don't think you'll be uh, making a bad decision buying in most capital cities if the you know, cash flow is good enough. So, you just got to pick the right assets. Don't go into those high-rise units or the off-the-plan houses. Like, there's a lot of, a lot of effort and marketing out there for seminars pushing people towards that stuff. So, you know, and my two cents on off-the-plan. Um, you know, four bedroom house or three bedroom is you're paying a premium for a new product. It's like a new car. You don't get the discount. There's a lot of similar stock. They quote great growth rates in those suburbs because they've literally raised the average capital value of the suburbs. Because if you build a hundred new homes, those hundred new ones are going to be probably a little bit more expensive than the 5,000 old homes there. So the average lifts because they're part of the transaction volume. So a lot of people will confuse you with stats in that space. And this is why it's risky. You know, if you buy good old standard existing stuff, um, it's uh, it's a little bit easier to do well. So you reckon good price points are a sub seven fifty? Let's let's get some secret sauce. Where are you buying then, Resi? Uh, look, all the the cheaper capital cities. Uh, so you know your Perth, your Adelaide's. Um, we're we're still into Brisbane. I think that market's just got a good decade any, ahead of it. Any specific suburbs you can give us? Are you going to hold that stuff? Middle Ring tight? suburbs. Middle Ring. Yeah. Here we go. What about you, Sid? You probably a little bit more comment. Middle Ring, Brisbane suburbs. Okay, so pretty much anywhere <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> on a train line to the north of Brisbane, but. Uh, um, that's good buy now. So you reckon another good 10 years in Brizzy for, for capital growth? Yeah. yeah. And two of these properties I was going to sell were in Brisbane. I went, I'll be silly to get rid of them because I just wouldn't replace them. Yeah, look, Brisbane hasn't had the most spectacular 12 months. So, you know, you'd rather sell after a real booming period. And it has boomed up there, let's be honest, but it came out off very low points. Like the decade prior to the boom, 
uh, everyone thought it was going to come five years earlier, that growth spurt. That was almost one of the strangest things in real estate, why that market didn't go when it did. Yeah. But it's gone. But there's still legs in it because look at the value of Sydney, Melbourne, average incomes, like um, there's going to be an infrastructure boom up there. So it's not going to go backwards. No, it's not going to go backwards. But I was, I got in the brizzy reasonably early and I was sitting around waiting for some time for it to, to shift because all the indicators said it should have, but it didn't. It took a couple of years before it started moving. But uh, what's next for you, Sid, on your own portfolio? Just selling down resi, buying more commercial. What sort of commercial stuff are you going to get into? What sort of price point? So at the moment, I'll go industrial. I think I want to probably go into a different asset class, maybe retail, shopping centers. Um, yeah, maybe childcare. I don't know yet, but probably I'd say two and a half mil wouldn't be the next purchase around that. Um, hey, would that be sort of putting down big deposits? Because I know there's a lot of favourable lending at the moment. If you can stump up the stamp duty, they'll give you 100%. Yeah, it would be a large deposit, probably be 30% deposit on that one. Um, and that's why I'm kind of, I'm going to sell something in July because I've already done this tax year's selling. And then the proceeds from that, I'll probably go into into commercial and yeah, look, like you said, there's always that dilemma, should I sell or should I just refi and keep it? Um, but th there's just a lot of equity in there. And if I just refi, I'd just be getting a lot of debt. It just, again, won't be positive cash flow. So I may as well just, yeah, it'll just hit, uh, let me hit my goal quicker if I do it that way. How many people, people are making, making their decisions today based on interest rates where there are rather than looking towards a long-term um a median on, on interest rates and, you know, to the point I was saying is that, you know, you're refinancing at the top of the interest rate cycle um, and you go, well, that's going to hurt for a little while, but it should come down over time. How, how do you have a sort of healthy um, uh, acceptance of, of that rather than sort of the immediacy of what it is now, but having a long-term sort of mindset on, on where it'll go? Yeah, I always tell my clients, look, you've got to look at the long-term average, right? It's um, it's never going to be 2% and it's never going to be 8%. Like, you know, it's around the 5 5.5%. Um, yes, in the short period, you'll feel some pain and they're high rates, but you've got to look at it's a long-term asset. You're going to buy it for 10, 15 plus years. What's going to be the average interest rate you pay over that period? And once you kind of explain it in that way, you know, they, they tend to sort of you know, understand it a little better that way. And, you know, you average it at five, five and a half percent and you kind of go from there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the way I, I discuss it. And that's that's the way I look at it myself for my own portfolio, right? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, what's, so with, with your own portfolio, portfolio, sort of, just quickly, because I'm conscious of the time, sort of best thing about, the best thing you've done or the worst thing you've done? I think the best thing I've done is invested in property and got a portfolio. Um, I wouldn't say the worst thing. I think it's, you know, we all learn through it. Like I've bought a lot of those old houses in Logan. I probably wouldn't buy the old houses again, just the maintenance. I've tried to get into, you know, development and, and subdivision. I think if you just, you know, they say slow and steady wins the race, just buy good assets, good houses in good areas um, and they will grow. Just buy a slightly new asset, don't buy 40-year-old Queenslanders um and yeah and and look um don't be don't be scared like just because you know even up until now every time I'm about to purchase I'll always oh is it is it the right thing but because I know I've done it so many times I'm like yes it is the right thing you just have to have that um you know kind of that that confidence to, to go ahead and then push yourself to to do it so yeah how um, do you find purchasing your first commercial 
Look, I because I had I had a large resi base, and I'd been researching commercial for about eighteen months um, before I, I got into it. Um, so for me, um, you know, it was I was kind of already mentally prepared, um, and also I think it took a while to get the first one, the right one. So when I went through the process, I felt like I already owned one because I, yeah, it, it took a while. Um, but yeah, look, I've never looked back. Um, you know, they've both my commercials have had seven, seven and a half percent rental increases every year for the last two years because of the inflation. Um, so, you know, even with the high rates and they're still positive cash flow. Um, and, and the first one I bought at, at 80% debt, even that's, that's positive cash flow. Um, so yeah, um, for me, it's, it's a no brainer, hence my, my pivot. Um, but yeah, I think you've got to get to a certain point. Um, you've got to have those funds available to be able to make that switch. If you have those funds from day one, I'd say do it. I mean, it's, it's money in your pocket. It's positive cash flow. Why would you start with, with something that's negative on day one? That's fair enough. And, and no other team over at Rethink can, can have all these, these discussions, right? Is that where it starts? Like trying to work it all out? Yeah, and just remember, like when you put a property under contract in commercial, we've normally got 28 days or at least 21 days of due diligence period. So even if you're not 100% sure, uh, you know, I remember working with Sid, he had lots of questions, very detailed, orientated guy, and uh, he was getting the confidence through the process, yeah, you know, because you don't know the asset, you don't know who the tenant is, you know, what the history of the property was. But by the end of that, due diligence period, you know more than the owner, one would think. And if you don't, you extend it or drop out of the deal if you're not feeling it. So it's not like you're going all in day one. You can sort of play it and, and get confidence. Give you the confidence. And, and that's a, a tactical point of view. What you're talking about there is that you control the property, right? It means that you, you sign a contract saying, I'll buy it, which is conditional to ABC. And if you choose to get out, you don't lose anything, right? Yeah. And you're never going to have that 100% confidence day one. Um, you know, to the point where I've had some clients um, prior to coming to me, they'd put four properties under contract at once. Yeah. So we don't do that. And that ends up just wasting time with, and money with lawyers and stuff like that. But uh, you can explore your way into confidence. And um, like I said, if you don't get that confidence, crash the deal, move on to the next one. You've only wasted time and maybe a few legal fees or a building and pest report, you know, you'll survive. Sounds good. So what do people do if they want to sort of, you know, they're going, oh, okay, well, I'm a resi investor and I'm tuning into this podcast with a view of shifting the commercial and now it's time because I've had all these inflection points. What do they do? Call you guys up. Yeah, call us. Um, our number's uh, 1-300-965-551 or just Google Rethink and you'll talk to guys like Sid and Mike we've had on the show and others, uh, you know, even Adam that you've had on the show, like these guys are all doing what they're doing. You know, they've had residential portfolios, they've done well, they're self-made and then they've invested in commercial and they love it so much. It's like, well, what else do you do with it? I want to be exposed to this uh, industry more and that's that's sort of how we all end up working together and um, yeah, it, it's a great experience. Would, would, would you give me a job as a, a, a property strategist? You'd be very hard to manage, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm probably unemployable these yeah, days. Right? I think so. Yeah, it would be hard to manage. Uh, you, know? you wouldn't You wouldn't do what you're told, that's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah don't worry. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to stay, stay podcasting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm probably better at doing that than, uh, than, than buying property. But thank, thanks for coming. See, good to see you, mate. Uh, keep up the good work. Um, uh, it's good to get these stories and, you know, it's 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 a lot of people also who are maybe potential staff members for you tuning into this, right, who are down this pathway because people have this this inflection point understanding the mechanics and machinations of property investing and they go, yeah, I want to quit my day job. But my, my hot tip is, um, and, and I can't remember who made the point, make your money 
in what you're actually good at making your money at and and don't try and do the other stuff like, you know, don't worry about development. Don't keep it simple. Like you want simplicity is key. Hence the reason why I'll keep doing what I'm doing. I'll pay blokes like you to to do the wealth creation bit. Uh, works for me, but you know, if that resonates, you can give the, the crew over at uh, Rethinking Rethink Investing a call. Uh, any questions as well? Where, where do people ask questions? I'll probably just email info at rethinkinvesting.com.au. And I know a lot of send it through your um, Momentum Media channels, which is which is great. You always give the feedback and uh yeah, no, it, it all helps part of the podcast, the feedback, and um, hence why we brought Sid in, more investor stories, like real people, so we'll keep doing that. Yeah, and we, we spoke about it uh, last podcast, signing off on this was uh, get some economists and demographer type people in, have a chat with us, get some science behind where to be investing. I've seen some reports I've shared in with you about sort of forecasts and people telegraphing what's going to be happening in markets, so we'll get into that also across 2024. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Uh, we'll see you again next time. Until then, bye-bye.